Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Elise Lunan, the Chief Content Officer here at Goop. I'm really excited about the guests we have on the Goop podcast today. He's actually the co-host of our new podcast series called Goop Fellas. I'll tell you more about that in a minute, but first, I want to thank our friends at Visit Florida for bringing this episode to you. If there's anything I've learned from planning vacations with my two-year-old Sam and six-year-old Max in mind, it's that family trips generally fall into two buckets, those that are heavy on scheduled activities and those that are all about taking it easy by the hotel pool. But the most memorable vacations, the ones that leave a lasting impact on everyone involved, fold a little bit of both into the agenda. As a destination, Florida leaves plenty of room for all of that and more. You can visit a world-class children's museum, hit up a water park, dig your toes into 825 miles of pristine beach, and most important of all, just connect and be present with each other. After all, our kids won't be so little forever. To plan your Florida family getaway, head to visitflorida.com. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Seamus Mullen is a chef who has come to focus on making food that's really good for you. He has one of the most incredible personal stories that I've ever heard. Seamus almost died from rheumatoid arthritis, and today he's sharing how he went about finally reclaiming his health. After I heard Seamus' powerful story for the first time, Seamus and I spent a lot of time talking about all different kinds of unlikely personal transformations, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. And from there, we came up with the idea for our new podcast series. It's called Goop Fellas, and Seamus just released the first episode yesterday with his co-host Will Cole, who is a brilliant functional medicine practitioner you might have heard on this podcast already. I hope you enjoy hearing my chat with Seamus today. And if you're curious about how people change, heal, and reinvent themselves, and who isn't, I highly recommend you check out Goop Fellas next. After having been in chronic pain for so long, it was a really remarkable feeling that I had forgotten what it was like just to be normal, relatively normal. And that was just, that was, that was probably the most motivating moment in, in my whole journey. All right, here we go. Seamus, thanks for being here. I know you've been Thank a you. long time participant in the Goop family. Mm-hmm. You predate me, so there you go. Oh my God. I know. I read about you. It's funny because we have friends in common, and so I was aware of you and your restaurants in New York, and then 
I wasn't aware that you had been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis or that you'd had sort of this healing crisis chef transition until I read about it in Goop before I ever even worked here. So yeah, so let's go back to that. So can you sort of explain what what happened? Well, with any diagnosis, there's just there's so many things that kind of lead to that moment of having uh, a label to hang your hat on. And I had been working as a professional chef for a a number of years, not feeling great for a long time for a variety of reasons, but I couldn't get down to what the, you know, what was causing it. And I kind of felt like, you know, I felt crappy all the time, but then I'd have, and by crappy, I mean like I just low energy levels and achiness in my body and stiff, but then I'd have these really dramatic acute attacks in different joints where a joint would swell up. And what I would end up doing, because I didn't really know any better, I would just go to the emergency room. And generally speaking, I would be discharged as a hypochondriac or given some pain medication and sent on my way. But eventually it got to the point where it was very clear that there was something severely wrong. And I was hospitalized and diagnosed with, with RA, with rheumatoid arthritis. So that was like, you know, it was a bit of a relief to a certain degree because I felt like there it wasn't all in my head and that there was a reason why I felt like crap all the time. But it really also began this new and kind of scary chapter in my life. And the diagnosis itself took forever for them to arrive at, right? Yeah, there was a lot of, you know, it's it's very hard with a lot of these diseases of autoimmunity really to put a, a name on it. And I think that there's also some danger in doing that too. Once you start to label something, then you just kind of funnel it into a certain vertical and say, this is the disease and this, these are the medications we use to treat it. And you don't really understand that the body's a system. There's so many different things that are going on within the body that are contributing how you feel. And at that point, despite the fact that you work with food, were you aware of how that might be contributing or were you just slapping some drugs on it and carrying on your bad boy ways. You, I mean, you think you, yeah, exactly. What chef bad boy, what were you talking about? <laughs> yeah, no, I was, you know, I think that I, I definitely, as much as intellectually, I understood there was a correlation between food and my illness, or I certainly didn't think that food made me sick. And now I obviously have a very different opinion about that, which we can talk about, but I didn't, I, you know, I kind of, intellectually understood that that food could help me out but i also was very much stuck in this this idea that well if i'm not gonna if we're gonna use quote-unquote food as medicine i should just be swapping out the medicine i'm taking and this food is going to do the trick and obviously that's not the case it doesn't work so yeah i had a i had a sense that there was i knew but i didn't know like i knew but i wasn't really living it right so what what was that period can you sort of take us through that period from diagnosis through to sort of the some of the healing crises that sort of yeah. right turned you? Yeah. I mean, the the first st- step in that was once I was diagnosed, I kind of had an immediate victim response where I thought, you know, what the fuck? Why me? Why do I, why do I get this? I didn't deserve this. And so then going into the, the process of going down the path of allopathic medicine, where you, you do slap medication on top of symptom, on top of symptom, on top of symptom until you don't know exactly what you're treating at. If you're treating the symptom, if you're treating the medication, if you're treating a symptom that's caused by the medication. So I, I kind of went down that path and really, I put a lot of trust in, in the medical community and the, the, the real problem that I learned in this journey is that there isn't anyone there to advocate for you other than yourself. You're the only person that really is going to. And if you're in this this rut of thinking of yourself as a victim, it's very difficult to advocate for yourself. So I, you know, I, I got, I kind of went from, I, I think of it when I look back on it, I, w- I was sick, then I was given a name for my sickness, and then I started, quote, treating that, and I got a lot sicker. Mm. So for several years, I went down the path of taking the conventional medication for for treating RA, and a lot of the meds that I was taking left me really exposed to secondary infections and other 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 th- shit that happened in my life that just made me really sick. So I got, you know, I did get to a point where it was change or die. So what was that? That was probably the... I mean, it was like the umpteenth trip to the emergency room, but it was basically, um, and I've, I've talked about this a lot, but it was this moment of, of having, I mean, I got a, I developed bacterial meningitis. So an infection that spread to my brain and I had a life threatening fever of 106 degrees and basically shut down and went through that whole near death experience. And coming out of that, I had a real commitment to myself to make a change. I sort of had decided that 
I wasn't really done and the life I was kind of done with being a sick person. Yeah. But I wasn't, I wasn't ready just to give up. But the, the, of course the problem was that I didn't know, I had no idea what to do. I didn't know. I didn't have a house there looking at all my symptoms and saying, Hey, this is what's going on. We're (laughs) going to figure out and get to the bottom of this. Because for a long time I had had all these weird disparate things happening in my body that seemed unrelated. And anyone that I spoke to in, you know, any doctor that I saw, I was like, well, there could be a correlation between that and that, but nobody was connecting the dots. Right. And you had sort of these raging and you had a series of raging infections, right? In part because you were taking drugs to suppress your immune system. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so that you're not fighting yourself, right? Exactly. Perfect storm of bad consequences. Mm -hmm. So that point, that sort of like near-death experience, that desire to have a different story, but no idea what to do. Like, where did you direct the energy? And then where, what happened next? I mean, I, I, you know, the, the first approach was, was to throw myself into trying to understand how the immune system worked and what was going wrong with my immune system. And that was pretty challenging because there were, at the time, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, if you will, that food and lifestyle could impact autoimmune dysfunction. But anytime I brought that up with my conventional doctors, there was, there was a lot of resistance saying, listen, there's no, there's no empirical data to support this. We don't know what causes RA, but we do know how to treat it. And we know how to treat it a lot better than we did 20 years ago. So I, I initially felt really lost. Like I knew that I wanted to change. I knew there was, there was stuff that I could do, but I didn't really know what that was or how to actually throw, go down that path. And the problem is when you're really sick too, you having, you can, you can eat, chew on as much turmeric as you want. It's not going to do the same thing that popping some prednisone is going to do. Right. So I, I definitely had a lot of fits and starts initially where I tried to make changes to my diet, saw no impact, saw no change. And then was like, fuck it. I feel better if I just eat a pint of ice cream because at least I get some level of, of pleasure from that or relief. Or there's some sense that I'm not you know, dying. Yeah. So the first part was really hard. And and then I, you know, I met uh, a doctor, Dr. Frank Lippman, who practices functional medicine and that I met him socially and it, it only came out through conversation that he realized that, I mean, he, he could tell when you see someone now, if now that I'm in this world too, and I've been very steeped in understanding how autoimmune dysfunction works and, and you can really see somebody who's dealing with inflammation. It's written on their body mm-hmm. and he, he could see that I was suffering and he could see it on my body. So he kind of initiated that conversation with me and it opened me up to a completely different way of thinking about, about my health. And he took on that role of quarterback of saying, Hey, yeah, you know, I want to hear what's going on in your life. And all these little things are connected. And I think the most remarkable piece of it for me was that he wanted to know my entire medical history going all the way back to my childhood, as much as I could remember and not, not necessarily getting medical charts and, and my test results and all that. But what he wanted to know is, can you just tell me in your own words, what it's been like to be Seamus for the past 30 some odd years? And as I told him that story, and I wrote it down, which was really helpful for me. And he kind of looked through and I told him through everything I could remember. He started to to piece together this puzzle that actually kind of was like a mystery that went had its origins in my in my early childhood. And that, as I've learned a lot more about health and the way the body works, it's clear to me that generally speaking, particularly when you're talking about chronic illness, there isn't there isn't like any one moment that's the tipping point that this is what made you sick or this is what happened, but rather it's the accumulation of all these small little things over time. And you can't, that's why it's very difficult to find a panacea to, to reverse it all because you kind of need to look at all these different elements mm-hmm. within, within your own life and, and, and to, to address them one by one. So what were some of those early, what were some of the puzzle pieces for him? So early on, I mean, I think to me now in hindsight and in this conversation that I initially had with Frank, like early on, it was clear that from an early childhood, I had some serious digestive issues. And his his suspicion, which is really based in, in Chinese medicine, is that when you don't know what's going on with the body, you treat the gut. So the gut, you know, obviously now we talk a lot about the gut and gut health and microbiome and all of that, but that was relatively, it wasn't part of the national conversation 10 years ago, mm-hmm. nearly as much as it is now. But his first question was, tell me about what food was like for you as a kid growing up. And for me, I grew up on a small organic farm in Vermont where we had great produce. We had great food. So to think that 
food could have been at the origin or had had uh, played a role in me being ill seemed a little incongruous. But uh, one of the things that I did remember as we started to talk through this is that after nearly every meal as a kid, I, I, I'd be bloated. I'd feel really uncomfortable and bloated and I'd have to lie down. And as I look back on how we ate growing up, I mean, we ate a lot of carbohydrates and a lot of gluten. And these are things that he and I found were really effective at making me feel like crap. Right. So for a long period of time, just extended exposure to to soy, gluten, sugar, uh, carbohydrates growing up probably contributed to to eroding the integrity of my gut and then and also diminishing my immune system. So I spent a lot of time as a kid, I got a lot of infections, strep throat, ear infections, which were often treated by antibiotics. So I'd get slapped with a course of antibiotics and that would continue to break down the integrity of my gut. So those are kind of like the initial things. And then when I was 15, I got a really bad infection. I got salmonella Mm. uh, and that, that really just kind of wiped out my digestive system for, for years. So those are all like, there were kind of these moments throughout the course of my childhood and my early adult life where I, I had gotten infections or I'd gotten sick. And I probably, over time, my immune system was getting weaker and weaker. So it was more likely that I would get sick. And that just got to a point where you know, things broke down. Yeah. No, it's so interesting when I think about like my own childhood too. I had, my mom would sort of force feed me Metamucil because I just mm-hmm. like couldn't go to the bathroom and like certain things like that where I'm like, it's so funny and my mom's a nurse and my dad's right. a doctor. And at no point were they like, huh, like, why this are we giving normal. our eight-year-old yeah. Metamucil? But, and I think about those, I had strep all the time, et cetera. And I don't think I've ever had anything besides pregnancy that has tipped me over. But mm-hmm. it's interesting. I know you are good friends with Will Cole and he helped me a lot mm-hmm. sort of in rebuilding my immunity because mm-hmm. it just felt like I was slipping down a slope towards Hashimoto's or some other... There's so many insidious autoimmune diseases for women, which is yeah. why I think you're such a remarkable role model too, because there aren't as many men yeah. who can sort of speak to what happens with this much inflammation. So you started working with, with Dr. Lippman, and I I know your story. So one of the things that I think is so important is that he told you it would take, what, a year? And you wouldn't feel really any different yeah, and he, or you'd feel worse for yeah, the first Yeah, he said I might months. feel worse, I might feel better. And then he, he put out, I mean, this is a, a quote from him. He said, you're going to feel better between five and 95% better. So he, you know, <laughs> was, was covering his ass. But what he really meant by that was that how, how much better I felt would depend upon me. Right. And that was a very different approach for me, a very different approach to understanding my own role in my own well-being. Historically, I thought, well, I go to the doctor, I've done my part, and the doctor will give me a pill, and now the doctor's done the doctor's part, and we'll see what happens. We'll take it from here. But Frank's approach was very different, was very much, he's you know more of a coach saying, we're, this is where we want to get to, and in order for us to get there on this journey, we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to make some, some significant lifestyle changes, and it's up to you, the compliance is up to you. If you don't make these changes, you're not going to see any 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 improvement. But if you do, and if you're really diligent about them, then you know who knows what what level of improvement you could see. And 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 of course, what ended up happening is that once I mean, initially the first part of the of the of the process was was not good. I felt a lot worse for quite a while. But what ended up happening, which was remarkable, is that I had a coach with me along the way. You know, he was there as a coach, if you will. And I had a support system of friends and family around me who were also kind of had rallied around me to, 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 to get me there as well. And eventually I started to feel better. Yeah. And when I started to feel better, that's when I realized, holy shit, this actually works. Right. So the more better I felt, the more better I wanted to feel. And he, it was a, it was, I guess, not even a gentle unraveling, right? Like you, didn't you say that he described it as sort of like a trash bucket of different underlying factors mm-hmm. that you guys were unwinding? Yep. And so let's hear some of the gruesome details. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> let's see. I mean, digestive things are always fun to talk about. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I had, you know, for years I had diarrhea for years. And and anything that was at all spicy, even though I love spicy food, 
gave me immediate pain and then sent me into an RA flare up. Like I started to have serious pain in my joints and swelling in my joints. And that became, it became pretty clear that there was something going on in my gut. Like I was, I either had lesions or I had some sort of uh, colitis in my gut. There was something going on that made it very difficult for me to digest foods that were extremely inflammatory. I think the biggest and grossest thing that kind of, <laughs> that was the real tipping point was I had, I was in Mexico uh, in 2001 and got really, really sick. And I spent a couple of weeks like with the classic digestive infection, gastroenteritis or something, whatever it was, gastritis. And he, when I came back, he's like, you know, I think you probably have parasites. I mean, when, when you know, I didn't realize this is like... 15 years prior or no, it wasn't that, I guess it was like, this was, I was seeing him in 2011. So this was 10 years later. He suspected that I had parasites and that I'd had parasites for 10 years and he, and he was right. So that, you know, that was kind of gross to know that I had like these worms living in my, in my guts. And, and the reality was that they were probably having parasites was continuing to erode my gut to, to create greater gut permeability, but also the bacteria as a byproduct of these parasites was creating a dysbiosis within my gut. So we had a treat for that and it's pretty hardcore drugs you take for antiparasitic drugs. That was really unpleasant. And, uh, they got to get out. They got to get out. (laughs) Yeah. Any way they can. And any, (laughs) Yes. Yeah, even if it's through your skin. Do you really want to gross yourself out? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, go and look at how parasites die off. Yep, exactly. And then what the impact is on the body as they do that. Because the body goes through a, a, a toxic reaction too as that happens. So yeah, it was that was not fun. But that, I mean, again, I wouldn't say parasites caused RA. Right. And I also wouldn't say eating gluten as a child caused RA or had taking antibiotics caused RA. But rather, like the in any kind of autoimmune dysfunction, and I think RA is kind of most autoimmune diseases uh, or dysfunctions because I don't even really think of them as diseases. It's where the body goes off off the rails. the The symptoms are often very very similar from one to the next, and how it presents itself. So wherever the body is weakest is how it's going to present itself. And you know, you can have. You could have, I mean, you, you could be genetically predisposed. It might run in your family and you never get sick, but then all of these other factors that are kind of keeping you healthy start to break down and then suddenly it might appear. So the human factor, the behavioral factor is so important in mm-hmm. chronic illness for, for everyone. I mean, there's, when we talk about modern diseases, most of these are diseases that are, that are preventable, mm-hmm. but it's very difficult once they take hold necessarily to reverse them 100%. So take us back to those early days. What were the instrumental things that you did to start unwinding besides treating parasites? Yeah. No, people ask me this all the time. And I think often because they want to know what, what do I need to do? And it goes back to like, well, what should I eat? And the, I can tell you what I did, but I think it's really important also to remember if you get too hooked up on this idea of causality, this of identifying, this is the thing that makes me sick. So therefore I change this one thing and I'm going to get better. Yeah. You have to really look at it as we did as this multitude of factors. So the, I mean, the first thing that we did was, was a cleanse followed by an elimination diet in conjunction with supplementation to try to build up the integrity of the gut, then treating for parasites using, believe it or not, low level antibiotics as well. And then adjusting my diet from there, also trying to moderate stress as best as I could through yoga practice, through meditation as best as I could, which is not something that comes very naturally to me and and I struggle with, through sleep, improving quality of sleep. Again, something that I really struggle with still now. You know, I'm I'm trying to get better and I'm working on trying to be a better sleeper, but that's a, that's a real, that's a real problem for me. It's something that's really difficult for me, but those were kind of the main modalities initially. And it's remarkably simple to think that food could be such a powerful tool for treatment of illness that has absolutely zero risk. There is zero risk to using a diet as a tool. Yeah, it's all upside. There's no hangover. There's no, there's no addiction. There's no um, side effects. Side effects. Yeah. No, it's true. So that was, that was really the, that was the approach. Totally. So take, so six months in, you sort of had sort of your first First taste of, yeah. First taste of feeling good. It was like an amazing breakthrough. It wasn't just like, oh, I think I feel a little bit better today. I had spent years in pain getting out of bed every morning and just 
dangling my feet off the bed, fearful of putting my feet on the ground because it, it, on, on the worst mornings, it felt like somebody was smashing my feet with a hammer, mm. just touching the ground. And that neuropathy in the feet was just horrific. And, uh, but I kind of become really accustomed to dealing with pain on a daily basis. And I, you know, I had coping mechanisms, many of which were not, you know, I certainly wouldn't advocate. We'll talk about that <laughs> we could in talk a about that <laughs> to get through. And, you know, it's, um, I, I had this moment where I woke up and, and it's hard to really understand this unless you understand that for many years, my evening routine was basically go to bed as late as possible. So as soon as I hit the bed, I'd be so tired. I had to fall asleep because I knew that I was going to wake up an hour, an hour and a half after falling asleep and the bed would be soaked from night sweats. Mm. And then I would get towels and put them in the bed and try to go back to sleep again and then wake up in the morning and shuffle around in pain once I got up. And it was a very, I mean, that was my day to day for years. So six months after, after we started changing the way we were treating, treating my health, I woke up in the morning and hung my feet off the edge of the bed and it didn't even occur to me that they didn't hurt. I just started walking and then I started going down the stairs and halfway down the stairs realized that I was walking like a normal person. Mm -hmm. I wasn't taking one step at a time, which was something I had done for years and years and years. And I had this just incredible moment where suddenly I wasn't in pain. And after having been in chronic pain for so long, it was a really remarkable feeling that I had forgotten what it was like just to be normal, relatively normal. And that was just, that was, that was probably the most motivating moment in, in my whole journey and the whole turnaround was this first experience of, it's like, it was like, you know, tasting water after months in the desert or something, you know, it was, it was really, really an incredible feeling. And that was just, that was really, in many ways, I think of that as being the true beginning of my journey. And then you got back on your bike. I got on my bike. I had ridden competitively as a cyclist when I was younger. And that was something I had to give up when I got sick. I, I mean, I had to give up all physical activity. I gained a lot of weight, which, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult when you're dealing with inflammation to, to move because you're dealing with inflammation. But also the less you move, the more inflammation takes hold. So it was one of those kind of um, damned if I did, damned if I didn't. But I pretty I had given up on any idea of ever being physically active again. But once I started to feel better, the first thing I wanted to do was was run around like a kid and grab my bike and ride my bike. And so I did. I rode my bike. And the bicycle has become this, for me, a really powerful metaphor for life in many ways. That if in order to, to not fall over, you have to be moving forward. You need momentum. And the moment that you don't have momentum, it's very challenging to balance. Mm. So it's, it's been this great metaphor for I me. I love that. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Just a second, we're taking a quick break. After the ice cream cones have been licked, the seashells collected, and the hotel snack bars ransacked, family trips are really about creating moments you'll remember forever. This makes sense intuitively, but I started thinking more intentionally about how we create these kinds of moments after I read a book by Chip and Dan Heath called The Power of Moments. I later got to interview Chip about it here on the Goop podcast. When it comes to vacations, we all want memories we can hold on to long after the suitcases have been unpacked. Everyone's ideal vacation looks different, of course, but for my family of four, the perfect vacation is a bit of a grab bag, and I think this is true for a lot of other families too. And that's what makes Florida the ultimate family destination, both because there's a lot to do and because there are plenty of chances to create some unforgettable moments. Florida cities offer any combination of cool museums, fresh seafood, and miles upon miles of beaches for my toddler and six-year-old to let loose. And then there's Disney World, Heard of it? 
but ultimately, a destination that brings us together where we are not glued to our screens and not replying to emails makes my husband and me happy. And Max and Sam are pretty thrilled too. In other words, Florida is the kind of destination we start planning a return trip to during the flight home. To get more inspiration and tips for planning a family trip to Florida, head to visitflorida.com. This June, I'm heading across the pond with GP and some of the Goop crew for our first in Goop Health in London. This is our version of a wellness summit, and it's going down the weekend of June 29th to June 30th. It's a little bit of a pinch me moment. I remember when GP first had the idea to launch a wellness summit, and it has been a privilege to watch the community of women and a few men grow from every in-goop health we've hosted in New York, Los Angeles, and last year in Vancouver. I feel super grateful that we now get to bring this experience to London, where we already have a lot of friends and where we look forward to making many more new ones. The summit on that Saturday, June 29th, will be an exploration of what it means to feel and be well, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. There will be talks and panels where experts share new information, insights, and perspectives. There will be classes and workshops where extraordinary practitioners will share tools that you can use in your daily life. There will be food and, of course, drinks. Saturday is an all-day affair, and it's totally worth it if you ask me. But if you want to just drop into Ingoop Health for a single class or workshop, check out all the sessions we're offering on Sunday, which is more of a choose-your-own-adventure a la carte setup. That Sunday, we're going to be hosting some cool workouts, energy healing groups, and wellness workshops. And one of my very favorite people, psychotherapist Barry Michaels, is coming with us from LA to lead his incredibly special, life-changing workshop. This is all a long-winded way to say, I hope to see you in London. Head to goop.com slash ingoophealth to buy tickets to Saturday Summit, Sunday's individual sessions, or to reserve a wellness weekender pass if you want to ball out with us even longer. That's goop.com slash ingoophealth. Back to my chat with Seamus Mullen. So let's talk about pain and chronic pain and painkillers. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, and I know you you are divorced, mm-hmm. right? How much, how, what, it must have been really hard to live with you while you were in chronic pain. Not it, to, not to ima- but I can't imagine how a relationship would survive that. It's really, really hard. And, you know, my ex-wife was an incredible, incredibly supportive person through the whole process. And I can't imagine, you know, how scary it must have been for her and how helpless she must have felt seeing her partner in in incredible pain. Did you meet her when you were already sick? Or? I was already sick when we when we met. So she had never actually known me as a healthy person. Mm. And that, you know, that was, I think that there, there were challenges. I mean, that was something that was, it set up a dynamic in our relationship too. Yeah. Were you so grumpy? I think I was, I think I was pretty angry. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was, I mean, less than grumpy. I don't think I was chronically grumpy. I think I was chronically angry. Yeah. No, I can imagine. So you were taking a lot of painkillers. So can you sort of talk through the moment when you knew that you shouldn't be taking them anymore? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I haven't really talked about this very much, (laughs) but you know, it's, yes, we have a, a culture and fortunately it's changing now, but we've had a culture for a really long time that's just thrown very, very powerful, dangerous med- medicines at people. Uh, not even medicine, we call it poisons that have ruined a lot of people and ruined mm-hmm. a lot of lives. And I think I'm really lucky that they didn't ruin my life, but they certainly ruled over my life for a long time. I was so in so much pain for so long that I felt like the only thing I could do to get through the day was to take pain medication. Yeah. And I did it for years and I, I knew when I was taking them that they were definitely impacting my, my personality. I mean, I think when I say I was really angry, that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, anytime I tried to go off of them was, was horrific. I mean, I, for years, if I didn't take my tramadol at 8.30 in the morning, my ears would start ringing and rushing. I'd start to get cold, clammy sweats within like 20 minutes. And the minute I popped a pill, it was all gone. Right. And that was only one of many pain medications that that I was on, um, which, you know, I think that 
I think it's changed a lot. Well, I know it's changed a lot, but for a long time, the medical community is pretty cavalier about how they prescribe pain medication. You know, you could be on something like Dilaudid. I mean, I was on Dilaudid for a long time and then you'd have a two month prescription. It would run out and there was no plan for what do you do now? And if you take it to take Dilaudid for two months and stop taking it, you're, you're going to go through, you're going to go through withdrawal and a, yeah. you know, and a very dangerous withdrawal and one that's one of the worst physical experiences I've ever gone through. And, and it's so scary to know on one hand that there's a, there's a chemical that is ruling your life and to feel one shame about it and mm-hmm. to hide it, it, to want not to have that chemical rule your life, but at the same time to be completely dependent upon it. Yeah. No, I mean, it's the story. It's like the story of our time, right? Yeah. One of the primary stories of our time is people who have legitimate chronic pain who are prescribed painkillers and it completely gets away with them. I mean, yeah. it's it's horrific and potent stuff. So how did you... and and it requires a lot of skill. I think that's the other thing. There's hard to understand the resource for getting off of it. Yeah. Like that's your sort, a lot of the people are in a prison. Yeah, there isn't, well, one, there's so much stigma attached to it. So that, I mean, I I definitely, I felt as though, because I knew I was physically dependent Mm -hmm. on, on pain medication I felt as though that was my fault and there was there was a lot of shame. Yeah. So I didn't even feel comfortable reaching out for help to try to get off of pain medication. Yeah, who knew? Did anyone know or was it just your secret? I mean, it was pretty much my secret, but it's the other thing is is that because I was so sick, everyone, I mean everyone knew I was on pain medication, but it was justified. Right. You know, well, of course he is. He has to be. But, you know, they didn't know that the the other problem with opioids is that you develop a tolerance really quickly. And so even if you're prescribed a sufficient amount for, you know, for, for pain management, inevitably anyone who's on them long-term will start taking much more than what they're prescribed. They'll start chewing them up and then you run out right. and your prescriptions run out and you start juggling between doctors to get an, a greater prescription. Or, you know, I had my pharmacist, I used to, he would, he would have, instead of putting my prescription through when the insurance would reject it because I was, I was, it was up too soon. He'd, he'd like give it to me and say, don't worry, I'll, I'll send it through at the middle of the month. You'll be fine. Mm. And because everyone kind of legitimately felt like I needed it. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, the, the fear when the, my prescription for the month was getting towards the bottom of the end of my prescription. And I wasn't sure whether or not I was going to be able to get a refill. I mean, it was legitimately, yeah. It, was, it was a serious fear. So what was the moment? Was it after Lippman got you to the point where you got out of bed without pain after, and that had, you had enough of an experience where you knew that maybe you were out of pain? Like what was the, was there a moment when you decided that you needed to finish the journey? Yeah. I mean, that was, the, that was the beginning where I felt like, okay. I mean, at the time I was also on three, I think three different pain medications. Right. And I had enough. I hate saying this, but willpower or desire to get off of pain meds that I was able to get off of two of them. But now in hindsight, looking back, it's like, yeah, you didn't really get off of two of them because you were still taking pain medication. So you weren't going through the, you weren't going through withdrawal. Right. Um, They're all in the same family. So basically I was still getting enough of this, uh, of this substance to keep my body from going into a toxic withdrawal. And and for another six months, maybe, or more, no, probably in like another year, I continued to take tramadol, which, you know, is a, I, I think is a really, really dangerous drug. It's a synthetic opiate, which is, was for a long time prescribed more freely than, than, than opiates because they believed it to be less addictive and less powerful. But my experience has been that it was extremely difficult to get off of. Mm-hmm. And it really took... And I very, I, I, when it came to the tramadol, I was taking one time release pill a day. So I couldn't, I didn't have any way of tapering myself off of it. Right. I only had one pill and I, it was one pill a day. So I couldn't really go any lower than that. And I eventually, I ran out and I kind of made this decision in my mind that stoically, oh, I'm just not going to try to get another refill. I'm just going to sit this one out and I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And the next day I started having the ringing in my ears and, and, cold, clammy hands and shaking, but I kind of muscled through it. And then by day two, it got a lot worse and I started getting really sick to my stomach and having 
the classic withdrawals. And by day three, I was really, really fucked up. Yeah. And, sure. uh, and that's when I called, I called Lippman and I told him, and he didn't even know I had kind of been hiding this from him. He didn't even know that I was still taking this pain, these pain meds. And, um, and he just, I mean, he was amazing, you know, as he has been for me for, for a really long time, for many years, he was so compassionate. Again, he didn't, he didn't blame me. He blamed a broken system mm-hmm. for abandoning me and not only abandoning me as, as a sick person and giving me medication that made me sicker, but abandoning me and leaving me uh, to my own devices to try to deal with yet another massive problem, which was addiction to, to a substance. Right. So I know you've sort of emerged on social media and just in your career as both an example and sort of a coach for an unofficial coach, I guess, but of this, I guess, desire, autonomy, and sort of pathway to healing yourself. Mm-hmm. What what do you find? Like, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? Two things. I get a lot of people that come to me with complete despair, feeling like, how the fuck did this happen to me? I'm in this situation, and I feel like I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting any answers from my doctor I'm so scared or I'm newly diagnosed. I have no idea what to do. And I try to, as best I can to, to just more than anything, just to, to listen and hopefully to, to give them a sense of hope, because I think that's probably the most important element in the journey is to believe you can get better. If you can't get over that first hurdle, you're never going to get any further along in the journey. And then I, I have a lot of people that, that many people who I've had no idea that I've affected in any way who come to me and say, Hey, I just want to say, you know, I, I read something you wrote, or I heard you on a, on on a podcast, or I saw you speak, or saw you on TV, and read more about it. Or I got your book, and and I've been following what you do, and I've been doing applying that to my life, and I've gotten off prednisone, and I've cut back my meds, and I'm feeling so much better, and et cetera, et cetera. And I see that, and it's just to me, it's it's really heartwarming. It's incredibly re- rewarding, but it reinforces what I really believe, which is that I'm not remarkable. My journey isn't remarkable. My journey is the same journey as millions of other people have been on and and can be on. It does require a lot of focus and it requires a, a commitment to yourself, some real self-love, if you will. You know, you really have to you really have to care for yourself because you don't know I mean no one else is going to. So it does require that. But if you're able to do that and you're able to recruit a team of people around you, a family that can support you in that. The, the, the upside is incredible. It pays, it's, it pays in dividends. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always really, really touched and, 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 and just excited when I hear stories of other people that are on their own journey that seem so close to being parallel journeys to the journey that I was on. Yeah. So you talked about how originally when you were first very sick, how you had this victim mentality was there a moment for you that was it just the near death experience? Was that the moment that crystallized like how completely not effective that point of view is, or what? What was that change? Yeah, the change was. I mean, that was a big part of it. I think it came, kind of came in two stages. The first was being having a moment where I saw the light and I basically died, mm-hmm. and then I came back from that and realized I'd been given another opportunity to make good on what I had been through that made me really realize, okay, I've, I got to do something because nobody else is going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, my ex-wife, it was incredibly supportive. She, she was constantly saying, why don't you try this? And you should try that. And she would do it with me. And I would always, you know, kind of poo poo it and, and just, I'd make a half-assed effort at, at trying to make some changes in my life. And it's just like anyone, even, even if you have an intervention with an alcoholic, that alcoholic's not going to change until they decide that they're ready to change. Right. And and it took for me that moment of fuck I can lose everything. Mm-hmm. I'm going to lose everything. Do I want to do that? Do I have the willpower to to at least change my own mind? Mm-hmm. And that's all I really need to do is change my mind. That was the beginning. And then the second part of it was when I that moment when I woke up and I I wasn't feeling chronic pain for the first time. That was like the the payoff. Okay, this makes sense. This shit works. I'm going to be able to move forward now and I can continue to, to build on that. Mm-hmm. And it's this amazing thing with momentum that once you start to accumulate enough positive momentum, it just becomes, you know, it's this rolling stone yeah. and you can just build on it and build on it and build on it. And I always feel, I mean, even now, like I, I, I know that my immune system is so much stronger than it ever was before. I know that my health is so much stronger than it's been in years, but I still am very, very cognizant of the fragility of life. And so I try to, as best I can, 
lead my life always, always adding to the positive and trying to build on it. And, and I still, you know, I, I get myself down, I get really bummed out and I have really bad days and I have days when I'm really scared of getting sick again. But I, I know that, okay, I always give myself some credit and I, I, I had this great lesson when I was, when I was really young growing up, my, my grandpa's best friend was a guy named Tatsuo and he was a, he was a gardener, Japanese guy. They had been in, they were in world war two together and were friends for 40 some odd years. And I remember when I was maybe nine or 10 years old visiting my, my grandparents and Tatsuo was in their garden and he was gardening and he was kneeling and crawling backwards. And that's how he gardened. He kind of crawled backwards as he gardened. And I asked him, why he crawled backwards when he was gardening. And he kind of like had this moment where he took his gloves off and like, he was going to teach me a lesson. Now took his gloves off and put his tools down. He sat up and he looked at me and he said, well, Seamus, that's so I can always look at everything I've accomplishment I've accomplished already and not be daunted by all the task ahead of me. Mm. And I, I re- remind myself of that lesson as much as I can when I'm feeling really down that, okay, look, look at, Look at what I've gotten through. Yeah. So I can also get through the next thing, whatever is up ahead. Yeah. And your story is remarkable too, because you it's not like you came from immense privilege. Like you have built your whole life and career without a lot of assistance. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah I mean, well, I yes. <laughs> I I mean I'm 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 a white man. So <laughs> I, there. I do have a lot of the cards stacked in my favor, but, you know, I, and I was very lucky in that my, you know, I've had, I have a loving family and I wasn't a victim of abuse, but, uh, I definitely, you know, I, I also wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth and I worked really hard to, I worked really hard in my career and I had to, to hustle. And I think that there's an element of when, when you earn something and, and, my health is no, is, is no, no uh, exception. When you work really hard to earn something, you cherish it and you value it. Mm-hmm. And I worked really, really hard to, to regain my health. I never think of it as like a destination that I've gotten to. Yeah, It's a path that I'm on. It's a journey I'm on. I'll be on it for, for all my days on this planet. But the sweetness of not feeling ill and the sweetness of not feeling pain on a daily basis, that's something I cherish. And I'm very, very grateful for how do you eat now? So do, have you repaired your gut to the point where you can tolerate more things? Do you still have flare-ups or how do you, how do you eat? No, I don't have flare-ups anymore, which, which is great. And I've actually gotten less and less scientific in recent years. I used to always get my bloods done all the time and look at all my, my levels and everything and be really dialed in. But now I, I kind of feel like I have a very intuitive sense as to how I'm doing and how do I eat? Well, I generally... I mean, I don't eat crap and I have a pretty, you know, I, I don't have a loose definition of what is crap. I have a pretty like <laughs> clear definition as to what constitutes crap, but I, I try to eat a plate that has a lot of vegetables on it. And those vegetables tend to be rich in prebiotic fibers. And so they're, they're brassicas and broccoli and cauliflower and, and deep greens and all that stuff. I love fermented foods. I, I love good meat and good, good fish I love dairy and I allow myself to eat it because I love it, but I also know I feel better when I don't eat it. But I, I think there's like an element, I'm a big proponent of not having too much neuroses about food. Mm-hmm. If you become too neurotic about food, then the, the, the healthy choices end up be, becoming unhealthy in many ways. Yeah. But that said, you know, I, I know that if I do, I, I rarely eat gluten. And if I do eat pizza, I don't feel, generally speaking, I don't feel very good afterwards. I notice it. And if I've gone through like a period of time where I'm traveling and I'm not eating super well, I, I don't feel great. I just recently came back from Bali and, and while there's amazing there's amazing fruit there. And, but generally speaking, I couldn't control the quality of the oils that were being used in the food that I was eating and, uh, the quality of the food in general. And I didn't feel, I didn't feel super great afterwards versus like this week that I've been cooking every night and everything. Like I, I feel a real difference when I, when I have a, I have control over my food. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel a real difference in my body. I noticed, and I think part of it is also because I, I was so sick for so long, I had no idea that certain foods made me feel like shit because I just felt like shit all the time. So once I had kind of cleared that and gotten to a baseline and feeling really good, then I became much more in tune with how foods made me feel and what the, what the, the correlation was between what I was putting in my mouth and how my mm-hmm. body performed. Yeah, no, I think that's so important. I feel like 
in this idea of taking control of your health, when I mean, people don't feel well, the idea of being on a restricted diet for the rest of their lives is so Daunting. unappealing. Yeah. yeah, and it's just like, fuck that. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. But I think the idea... The, the most important idea is that you might need to be restricted for a little while, a but it really time, yeah. is until you get to that baseline and then it becomes so preferential exactly. and natural. And it also depends on what's going on in your you know, particular meat vessel that you're living in because everyone is, you know, everyone's different. Meat uh, vessel. You know, for, <laughs> well, I mean, that's what we are, right? We're just a it's bunch true. of bones and blood and flesh. And bugs. Take that vegan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> That's the sound of fat hitting the pan. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, for 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 someone who's really, really is fortunate to be very healthy and has a great immune system and their gut biome is doing really well and yada yada yada. Chances are that eating eating crappy food periodically is not going to do very much and their body is the capacity. It's got the resources to deal with it. But if you're dealing with chronic inflammation and pain and you have a leaky, you're suffering from leaky gut syndrome or whatever, Hashimoto's or whatever you might be dealing with, you, you put garbage into your body and you're just making it that much harder on your body to get you well. Yeah. You know, we have, I always think of our immune system as having a finite amount of resources. And if you're not using a lot of those resources, cause you're lucky, then it can probably handle eating some, you know, eating pasta and eating, eating dairy and yada, 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 if that happens to not react to your body. But if you are compromised, you're, you're, you're going to just make things more difficult. And that's where, that's where, I mean, getting to a point of understanding how foods make you feel, I think is really important. And it's so individual. I, it really depends on each person. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Seamus Mullen. You can learn more about him at SeamusMullen.com and at goop.com slash the podcast, where you can also pick up his books, Real Food Heals and Hero Food. And most importantly, you can hear much more from Seamus and his co-host, Will Cole, if you head to our new podcast series, Goop Fellas. The first episode of season one just dropped yesterday, and they'll be releasing a new episode every Wednesday for the next several weeks. Now over to GP to take a question from one of you guys. What are your thoughts on homemade gifts? Reason I ask is because I'm not sure if it's tacky. That's from Jennifer. I love a homemade gift personally, especially if it's, I mean, I guess it really depends. If it's something I think that's really useful, like a beautiful bunch of dried herbs tied beautifully or some kind of garland or anything from your vegetable garden or jam, or if you have honeybees, I think all of those are really wonderful. I'm, I think personally, I would prefer that to, you know, something like a homemade paperweight or something, (laughs) but, but it's always really nice to, I think if somebody's made something with their hands or picked it with their hands and is giving it to you, I always think it's wonderfully sweet. Thank you, JP. If you have another question you want her to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. You can always find more on goop.com slash the podcast. And GP will see you back here next Tuesday. <laughs>